Hello and welcome to the Healthcare Ethics and Law podcast. Today we've got an episode for you about dental ethics and we're going to be looking at some core ethical principles and frameworks within dental ethics. We're going to look at some ethical theories and how they relate to dental practice and then we're going to look at some case studies as well and see how these relate to those. Uh, We're also going to be looking at some themes such as the changing dentist-patient relationship, some issues relating to professionalism and also professional standards. So we've got a lot to cover this episode and it's an episode that is quite close to my heart. I'm a huge fan of dental ethics. I think it's something that is incredibly interesting and it and, um, and I think it's something that in dental schools you know, in this country and in other countries it's something that's not really talked about a huge amount. Usually we look at legal concepts such as for say for example in the UK we're looking at consent we might look at a case such as Montgomery or, or Bolan and we'd look for a specific answer to the question that we're that we're faced with. For example, you know, what, what should I do to make sure a patient has valid consent? And we tick off X, Y, and Z. But what I really want to do is move away from that a little bit and that crossover between ethics and law. And I really want to just push into the ethical space and look at that in a bit more detail because I think that's a really interesting one. Now, traditionally, in a lot of cases, people think of morality as, as black and white. There's a right and wrong answer. There's an objective answer to any moral dilemma or ethical dilemma that we might be faced with. But the reality is a bit more different, it's a bit more nuanced. We know that when we're faced with ethical dilemmas, sometimes there's no clear answer. Sometimes we're pulled in different directions and, and we feel like there's no, there's no obvious solution to the problem we're faced with. And so morality and, and ethics, a lot of the time it's subjective, and a lot of the time it exists in this kind of gray area between two extremes, the extremes of being absolutely right and absolutely wrong. So today what I want to do is is look at some ethical frameworks and what they do is they try to give us a a way of navigating these issues. They try to help us find solutions to these problems and so that's what we're really going to focus on today and then we're going to look at how those apply in dental practice. So firstly, what is ethics? What are we talking about here? Well, ethics is defined as systematizing, defending, and recommending concepts of right and wrong behavior. And so what does that mean? Well, essentially, any ethical or moral theory looks at what is the right or wrong action in moral terms when faced with a dilemma, and it seeks to justify why this is the case. So if an ethical theory says X or Y is the right answer, it has to tell us why is that? What's the justification for that? And so we're going to be looking at three ethical theories today. Firstly, consequentialist ethics. Then we're going to move on to non-consequentialist ethics, also known as duty ethics or deontology. And then finally, we're going to dive into virtue ethics, which is a little bit different from the previous two. Um, And then we're going to look at how that relates to professionalism within dentistry as well. So let's kick off with consequentialist ethics. Consequentialist ethics is concerned about the consequences of an action, as the name suggests. So what is morally right or wrong depends on the consequences that the action brings about. 
So what an, a consequentialist moral theory has to do is say, well, what is it about the consequences of an action that make it right or wrong? And it has to provide a justification for that. The most famous type of conse uh, consequentialist ethics is utilitarianism. And now this was put forward famously in the 19th century by philosopher Bentham and his student and protege, John Stuart Mill. But we can trace this back all the way to ancient Rome uh, with the philosopher Epicurus, who, who looked particularly at a, a, a similar sort of concept to this as well. And so what this says is, what is desirable is happiness and the absence of pain. And so the morally right action is the one that generates the most amount of happiness, or conversely, the least amount of pain. So if we have a set of options, we're trying to find the one that generates the most amount of happiness. So let's have a look at this in the context of an example. Let's just say we have an imaginary ethical dilemma and we have three actions available to us. Action one, action two, and action three. So we're going to look at each action individually and see how much happiness it produces on balance. So let's just say action one produces 20 units of happiness and 10 units of pain. Overall, it's going to produce 10 units of happiness. Now let's look at action two, which produces 15 units of happiness and in contrast, zero units of pain. So overall, it produces 15 units of happiness. And finally, action three produces 10 units of happiness and five units of pain. So overall, it produces five units of happiness. So utilitarianism would say, well, let's look at the, the action that produces the greatest amount of happiness. And that's the, that's the morally right answer in this situation. And so that would be action two, because of, in contrast to action one, which produces 10 units of happiness, and action three, which produces a five units of happiness, action two produces the most on balance at 15 units. And so as we can see, it can be quite simple to use. We can compare a variety of different options or actions available to us, and we can provide an objective approach. So let's say we have to justify our, our reasoning, our ethical reasoning, in, for example, a public health debate. We can show people, well, these are the options, and we've chosen this option because on balance it will produce the greatest amount of happiness, or welfare or utility as, as it's also equated to when we're thinking about uh, medical ethics in particular. And so we can justify things quite easily and, and it shows that justification, uh, but there are some issues. So let's think about a, a thought experiment, okay? And thought experiments are used a lot in philosophy and a lot in ethics, and they're quite extreme examples sometimes, but they, what they do is highlight issues or tensions or strong points of an ethical theory. And so let's look at one today. This is the survival lottery thought experiment. And this was put forward by the philosopher John Harris. And so what he asks us to do is imagine we've got five patients on a ward and each of these patients is severely ill and they require an organ transplant. And if they don't get this transplant in the next 24 hours, they're going to sadly pass away. And then he asks us to imagine on another ward, we've got patient A, who is just in with a curable disease, for example, let's just say they're in with the flu. But they're set to make a good recovery, they're a healthy, young patient. And 
a doctor passes and they realise that this patient, patient A on the other ward who's just in for the flu, is a suitable donor for the other patients who require an organ transplant. And so John Harris says, well, there's an issue here because utilitarianism, if, if we look at it as we have done with our, with our example of the three actions, it sort of reduces it down to looking at this in terms of the balance of happiness and pain. And so let's imagine that each worth his life 100 units of happiness. So if all five people don't have an organ transplant, there's going to be 500 units of pain, let's just say, just to make it simple. Whereas if we save their lives, we may produce five units of happiness. And if we save their life at the cost of taking the other life, well, on balance, it will just be 400 units of happiness. And that would produce more happiness than letting them die. But there's an issue here because this is abhorrent. We would never do that in practice. We would never harvest an innocent person's organs. We would never sacrifice one life to, to help the others in this case. So this is clearly the wrong result. So what have we looked at here? Well, John Harris says, by simply looking at the amount of happiness produced, we sometimes get the morally incorrect answer. And this is a common uh, drawback or criticism of utilitarian ethics. And there's a lot of different formulations of this same example, uh, which some of you may have come across. Uh, but, the, but the issue is the same. Just by producing the greatest amount of happiness, we may not always reach the intuitively morally right answer. Another objection is put forward by Robert Nozick, and you can look up the thought experiment, um, the experience machine, if you're interested in that. And there's also a link to it on our website. And he says, well, we don't only value happiness, like utilitarians claim. We value other things, for example, having authentic experiences, achieving our goals, and, and being a certain sort of person. And so that, that sort of says, well, utilitarianism's got it wrong. It says we only value happiness, but that's not correct. That's not true. And finally, the last criticism, or two criticisms, which kind of merge into one, is that it's difficult to perform this utilitarian calculus. You know, it's difficult to just add up the sums of happiness and pain. We can't always predict the consequences of actions as well. So we don't know if we're getting it right. And if we predict that an action is going to bring out the greatest amount of happiness, but it ends up not doing that, where does, it, where does that leave us? Are we, are we therefore immoral, even though we've done something for the right reasons? And so these are some of the issues with utilitarianism uh, in general. And we can think about an example of this, which we've seen during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and it's an example looking at ventilators. So let's just imagine we've got two patients and we've only got one ventilator and we have to decide between two patients which one is going to get the ventilator. It's a busy acute medicine or A&E department and there's only one left. And so the doctors are going to have to choose between two patients. The first one, let's just say, is a 24-year-old woman who's a foundation doctor with an interest in cardiology. And the second patient is an 84-year-old lady who has a number of comorbidities, they live in a care home, they're unable to take care of themselves, and there's a chance that they may not make a full recovery. And so utilitarianism would say that on balance, we should choose to give the ventilator, even though it's a difficult decision, to the younger patient. Overall, they could generate the most amount of happiness. We could even say that they're going to be a doctor so they could help other people. Whereas the, the other lady, we're not sure she's going to survive. She's older and on a reductivist approach, will generate less happiness. 
Now this is one way in which we could look at this problem. Other people disagree with it. Other people don't like this way of, of sort of choosing and putting more value on one life to another. And that's a valid, valid response and a valid criticism. Some people say you can't compare the two lives. Each one is equally valuable. And we need a different way to think about this problem. So essentially, consequentialist ethics says that regardless of the cons consequentialist ethics, so essentially, consequentialist ethics says that the morally right action is the one that produces the greatest amount of happiness, or conversely, the least amount of pain. And so now we're going to look at non-consequentialist ethics, also known as deontology or duty-based ethics. And this says an action is not morally right or wrong solely based on the consequences or whether it brings about happiness. It says there are certain duties or, or rules which are morally right or wrong that we must obey. For example, don't kill, don't cheat, don't steal. And, and these these duties, they have a moral pull on, on, pull on us. We, you know, we have an intuition that they're simply right or wrong. And we are obliged to, to follow these duties and, and stick by them. And we can see these in medical ethics, dental ethics, in the form of professional duties or standards. And a famous example is the GDC standards. And it gives us a list of expectations for patients, standards which we are expected to meet, and also guide, guidance on how to meet these standards. And so it looks at what are our obligations, what are our duties towards our patients, towards our colleagues and towards ourselves. And so let's look at a, a practical example. So this is taken from the GDC website, and it says that the GDC have received a complaint from a mother of a teenage patient. She complained that during her son's appointment, the dentist said several things which she and her son found offensive, including views about dentist wages that the British government begged him to work in the UK. And they also alleged that the dentist was sarcastic when they were leaving the appointment. And so the GDC say, if we look at the standards, we can clearly see that some of them have been breached. So for example, standard 1.2, you must treat every patient with dignity and respect at all times. And so we can clearly see the dentist in this scenario, in this example, has not done that. And they've breached the professional standards, they've breached their professional duties. And what this allows us to do is point exactly to them. Uh, and it also gives us a clear indication of what our own duties are. And so that's a real benefit of this ethical theory. It provides a clear list of expectations and duties. And it can also be adapted to societal changes. And it's clearly action guiding. So what that means is it tells us what to do in specific situations or scenarios, and that's very useful. But what happens when duties conflict? So let's look at the example of water fluoridation. This is a well-known example within dentistry, and I'm sure many of you are familiar with it. It looks at the conflict between autonomy on the one hand, we're forcing people to have medication against the public consent, and many people disagree that this is something that should be done, and, and they're quite passionate that, that, it's, that it's wrong. 
and also conflicting with beneficence, so doing good. Because as we know, evidence shows that there will be a benefit to the oral health of the population if water is fluoridated. So the question is, how do we resolve this conflict? And I just want you to think, and you can think in your own own time, do you think utilitarianism would offer a better solution to this? Essentially, duty ethics doesn't give us guidance, clear guidance, on how to resolve these conflicts. How do we prioritise duties when they come into conflict? Is there a hierarchy of duties? Are there some things which we should put above others? Uh, and, And that's very difficult, especially when you're dealing with these tough ethical dilemmas, which, as we've spoken about, often inhabit these grey areas where there's no clear answer. And so it can create quite a rigid view here, and it doesn't really offer a solution in most cases. So that's, that's a big drawback of this type of ethics. And finally now we're going to look at virtue ethics. Now virtue ethics doesn't look at the, the actions or their consequences it looks at the individual, and this accords with a lot of people's intuitions that when it comes to morality, we're looking at are you a moral individual rather than do you carry out moral actions? And furthermore, do you carry out the actions because you want to be a certain person and because you want to have a moral character and adopt certain virtues? And this is something that was put forward by Aristotle over 2,000 years ago, and he said that the concept of a virtue is the concept of something that makes its possessor good. And so these are virtues, they're they're defined as excellent traits of character, such as being trustworthy, noble or brave. So how do we know which virtues to adopt? Well, Aristotle says that which virtue is applicable will depend on the situation. And through time and experience, we habituate towards adopting the right virtues, and this allows us to perform and understand in each situation what are the morally right and wrong actions. So let's take an example. Let's look at the virtue of courage. Now, this lies between a deficiency and an excess, the deficiency being cowardice and the excess being recklessness. And in between those two values, we've got the virtue which we want to adopt. And it, 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 it inhabits this golden mean. And so that's where courage lies, between two extremes. And we can see virtues and virtue ethics in definitions of professionalism. For example, the Royal College of Physicians in London says that a set of values, behaviours and relationships that underpin the trust the public has in doctors is a definition of professionalism. And they suggest values and virtues such as integrity, compassion, altruism, continuous improvement, excellence and working in partnership with your colleagues. And we can also see how values and virtues change over time. For example, we've moved from a paternalistic relationship between dentists or doctors and patients in which the patient would be told, this is what we're going to do, and they wouldn't have much say in it. Whereas now we've got this consumerist relationship based on autonomy and informed consent in which is more of a partnership approach. And there's more of a dialogue between the clinician and the patient. And recently, the University of Cardiff and GDC, they looked at an update on professionalism and what counts as professionalism, what the public expectations are, and what the expectations and understanding is of professionalism from the profession itself. And they found a number of key findings, and you can find the full 
guidance document as well as a summary video on our website in the dental ethics section. And they essentially say that there are a number of key findings. One being communication, good communication. As we've said, that's important to issues such as consent, but it also is important to issues such as respect and dignity. And this is expected from all members of the dental team, from the dentist, the receptionist, and everyone associated with it. It also said patients are becoming more lenient regarding professional social life, and they had changing expectations of their dentists, for example, in terms of appearance. And it also said that social media can be a risky space to interact with colleagues and indeed with patients. And they also looked at what key values patients had. So they interviewed patients and they said, what, what key values do you want your dentist to exhibit? Things about communication, empathy, compassion, politeness, friendliness. And there was also a big emphasis on building rapport and also building trust, which is incredibly important. And that really underpins definitions of professionalism. And so the benefits of this is it focuses on the individual rather than the disposition. When we're looking at virtue ethics, we're not thinking about individuals' actions, we're thinking about, is this a good person? Is this a morally good person? And that's something which I think a lot of people really relate to and think about. And so a lot of you may find this ethical theory a nice contrast to the other ones we've looked at. And it may be something that intuitively you sort of gravitate towards. Virtue ethics also allows us to modify the values based on the needs and views of society. So that can change over time, but also different uh, countries and cultures have their own values. So it allows us to, to adopt those and, and, to, and to take it on a case-by-case -case basis. The disadvantages are that it's not action-guiding, so it doesn't tell us what to do. Aristotle says that we habituate to do towards doing the right thing, but how do we know what the right thing is to do in the situation? Yes, we could try to be courageous, but what does that look like? Is that the right thing to do in this situation? And what action does that then mean that we should tend towards? And so a lot of people struggle uh, when they're in, in the midst of an ethical dilemma and they just want some sort of action or, or some guide on what the right action is. This can be a little bit tricky for some people. Um, but again, that, that's not always the case. And, and, and a lot of virtue ethicists would say, well, that's not the case. And, and it is action guiding just in a different way to consequentialist and non-consequentialist ethics. So in summary, we've, we've understood that ethics it lives in this grey area. There's, there's often no clear right or wrong. But looking at these ethical frameworks, it can help us justify our decisions. It can help us have a framework to, to work around. And we can see examples of this within healthcare and within specifically dentistry, which we've looked at today. And so thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I hope it's been uh, insightful and especially for dentists. I know some of you wanted one specifically tailored to you. So I hope you found this useful. And for dentists and, and fellow healthcare workers and, and professionals, or just those that are interested in the subject area, you can find out lots more information on our website, uh, including our webinar, which this podcast is based on. And also you can find lots more information and resources on dental ethics. Today we've just scratched the surface, but there's so much more to discover. 
So you can look at our website. There's loads more links, resources, information. So have a look at that, healthcareethicsandlaw.co.uk. And uh, you can also follow us on social media and YouTube as well. So we look forward to, to speaking to you again in our next podcast or our next webinar. And um, I hope you've learned a lot today and enjoyed the podcast. And thank you so much for listening and all your support as usual. We really appreciate it. So thank you very much and look forward to speaking to you soon.